Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. Mike, since we last spoke, the Trump administration and the CDC have issued guidelines for reopening America that use a three-phased approach based on criteria that states need to meet. In your opinion, are we ready to reopen? Thank you, Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. Uh, And I, like every other podcast, uh, start out by uh, thanking all those who listen to this podcast. And today I would like to actually uh, take a moment and actually dedicate this podcast to someone very special to me. Uh, This past week, I had the um, painful experience of of knowing that someone who was very near and dear to me, uh, my personal physician of 30 years, a dear friend and colleague, an infectious disease physician, Dr. Alan Kind, uh, who was an internist here at Park Nicollet Medical Center, died from pancreatic cancer. And since March 10th, I've been unable to see him because of the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, and uh, surely did not want to put him at any increased risk of acquiring it from my asymptomatic potential carriage of that. That was very hard not to see him in those last days. And while I realized that um, he did not succumb to COVID-19 infection, it reminded me of all the families, all the colleagues, all the best friends out there who never had a chance to say goodbye to that special someone in their life who died because of COVID and they couldn't see them. And so while my pain is mine and it's a slightly different pain than all of yours, the COVID virus has robbed us of those last days together. And I dedicate that to all of us. Alan, uh, thank you for all the years and also to all of you out there who have experienced over the course of the past months the inability to be there when a loved one was dying of this virus. So having said that, that gives me even more resolve to take this damn thing on and deal with it. And it makes me uh, even more committed to doing what we can to try to reduce that impact of this virus around the world. So when you ask me about are we ready to open up, um, we have to understand we're going to open up. We cannot exist in a closed down mode for how many, many months it might take before we get a vaccine that could, in a sense, rescue us from this virus. But before I address specifically the issue of opening up, let me just remind everyone, and I may do this podcast after podcast because it's almost like a prayer. It deserves being said. And that is the fact that uh, at best right now, the data we have would support that no more than 5% of our nation's population has been infected with this virus already. That means that if we're going to achieve herd immunity, which those of us who study the transmission of viruses would tell you, and the infectious nature of this virus surely puts it in the category of requiring 60 to 70 percent of us actually being infected and developing antibodies to it or acquiring that same level of protection through a vaccine before we're going to see it stop transmitting in our communities. Uh, That is a lot of people yet to get infected. 
So when I say we're in only the maybe the second inning of this uh, long ball game, that's what I mean. So think of what we're going to talk about today with starting and stopping, opening and closing, that this is not going to be a one-time process. And uh, we may not get it right the first time. We may not get it right the second time. But I fear that we're going to have multiple opportunities to try to get it right. And it would be nice if we could start it right away. Now, I find that the discussions between opening and closing have almost taken on some kind of biblical kind of uh, meaning in that uh, if you're not for closing, if you want to be open, that all you care about is your own personal rights and you don't care about the potential risk you pose to others, what you pose if you do get infected and come into healthcare, what you'd mean for healthcare workers, et cetera. And, you know, I, uh, I think there's some of those people that are like that. And uh, I'm sure that I will hear from them um, in an angry tone. But there's others who are just scared who want to go back to work because they need a job. They need a job really badly. And I think we have to understand that part of this situation as we talk about the public health actions and what we do about that. So I'm very uh, willing, and I think it's absolutely necessary that we understand the legitimate concerns about the need to get uh, our economy back. At the same time, we have to face the reality of this, what this virus can do and how it does it. And it is not going to go away, as I said. So therefore, what we have to figure out is how do we let it exist with us, where we try to suppress it in such a way as to hope that we get to a vaccine at some point, but at the same time, uh, release people into the public. I mentioned last week that we're working on a plan, which we are. Uh, we're getting there. It will be released soon. That will try in part to address some of these issues of beyond just on and off. I believe thoroughly that closing, opening is not an on-off switch. It's not yes or no. It's a matter of the degree to which we do it and how we do it and how we're capable of responding quickly if we see case numbers increase. So in terms of what we're talking about today, just remember that we're going to be dealing with this for some time to come and that uh, we're going to have to learn to live with it. I also would point out that in learning to live with it, remember that we don't know how this will play out other than the fact that this virus will continue to transmit through our communities. We will not stop it. Uh, the Asian countries are absolute proof of that, even with their very dramatic efforts to uh, reduce transmission through testing, contact tracing, et cetera, they're still having real challenges. So the one question we do have is how will it manifest itself if it keeps ma uh, transmitting? And we don't know that. In this report that I'm talking about that we'll be issuing, we'll be actually laying out the kind of different scenarios of maybe it will just be a slow burn where it just keeps happening and happening and happening. And sometimes it starts to go up a little bit and we try to suppress it. Um, there's another scenario where it'll come and go in waves, smaller waves, uh, a couple months here, a couple months there. Uh, and these just all accumulate over time, much like we saw this spring. Uh, there were surely a lot of cities in this country that were never like New York. And uh, uh, what does that mean? Will that continue to happen like that where it's just day after day, if you're in that one city that has uh, a problem, bad luck. Hopefully it doesn't hit our city or our, our rural area. Or I think there's a third possibility that we really haven't addressed yet. And one that uh, most people don't want us to address because it obviously is the most uh, concerning one. And that is that 
it does act more like a 1918 influenza pandemic uh, model. And what we see happen in the next two, three, four months after a relative quiet period, uh, reduced number of cases, whether it's because of what we do about it or not, and then all of a sudden it takes off and we have a large peak, a very large peak. To me, this is what we have to prepare for. This is what we absolutely have to be ready to respond to because this is the one where we will see by far the highest morbidity and mortality. And as I have shared with you before, a term that I've come to embrace is the case cliff, where in a large peak of cases, we can provide care up to a certain number and then we do run out of ventilators, we run out of medications, we run out of even necessary healthcare workers to help take care of these patients. That's when uh, individuals who otherwise might make it with support of the kind of healthcare we have today are now in a very compromised position because they just don't have access to healthcare. And we have to avoid those large peaks like that. And so that still could be the case. I think if I were to say to the people in New York who've just been through the recent episode, uh, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, you know, three or four months from now, you're going to have to go through this again, and it's even worse the next time. Uh, that would seem unfathomable to many of them, but it's going to be a reality that we have to consider. So we have three possibilities, small, bur slow burn, uh, kind of uh, these starts and stop kind of outbreaks in various areas, both urban, rural, and then potentially a more accumulative big peak that hits about all of us uh, next fall, whenever. Regardless of that, we got to reopen. So now what do we do? Well, I think this is where we have to have some criteria that I believe at least allow us the opportunity to possibly knock off that wave if it starts to increase. No one has really ever successfully shown that they can do that, dating back to 1918, where they can say clearly what we did suddenly changed the course of that peak. Um, so what are we talking about in terms of what you must do? And this is what has been detailed by the White House and their plan with the criteria, is you really want to be able to do several things. One is you want to know what's happening in your community with cases. This is where the testing issue becomes, I think, central to what we want to do. I keep hearing over and over again all these people that want to test, 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 and test. I have an op-ed piece coming out tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, in the New York Times addressing this issue. And it will basically uh, detail the fact that testing with what we have left amongst this sh reagent shortage environment has to be primarily reserved for acute clinical cases. We have to know if we're seeing these individuals getting infected because that is what will tell us is the number of cases going up or down. Um, and this, to me, is just such a very important consideration right now in terms of knowing, yes, it's the actual number of cases are increasing suddenly in our community. Uh, people who often say, well, we should be testing those out there who aren't sick so that we know. Well, you know, I'm, I tend to be a great fan of Willie Sutton, who once said, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. If you really want to know what's happening in your community, go to where sick people are who are illnesses compatible with COVID. And then if they're positive, that tells you that in fact, there's something going on there. So we have to do that. We also have to understand, are those cases going down? So once having the capacity to test everyone who needs a test today, if they're sick, are the number of cases dropping such that over a course of at least 14 days, the administration says 14 days, I would sure like to see more than that because I've seen too many times where a blip goes up and down in a course of 14 days. 
but in 14 days, are the case numbers consistently dropping as a percent of the positives tested, of the overall uh, number of new cases? If you have that, that's a start. So you've got adequate testing in place that everyone can be tested who needs to be tested today if they're sick. And this includes healthcare workers, first responders, as well as the general community. Next of all, you basically have the data to support that, that those test data show that the number of cases is dropping, is actually going down, both as overall number and as a percentage of those being tested. Then you want to check and see, well, what's my reserve? What do I have in my community that if should we have a spike in cases, 25% sudden increase in hospitalization, including intensive care needs, can we handle that? Do we have in place the number of ventilators? Will we have access to those ventilators if we need them, if we don't have them? Uh, what are my healthcare workers' uh, protection issues right, right now? Do I have an adequate number of N95s, uh, gowns, et cetera, uh, eyewear protection? Uh, making sure that we have adequate there to handle at least, at least a 25% increase in cases overnight. And then finally, we want to put in place these other systems that can also serve as critical warnings, such as what we talk about called syndromic surveillance, where we're talking about influenza illness-like surveillance, which may or may not today be the best marker, but we sure can look at it, how many cases are reporting to doctor's offices with this illness. Um, what are we seeing in emergency rooms? What are we seeing in other uh, kinds of health settings that would support the fact that we're actually seeing uh, this COVID-19 uh, virus transmission. So if you have those in place, I think you can start to begin to reopen. Um, I am biased by saying I am absolutely uh, uh, amazed at this virus, what it can do transmission-wise. And I think we're going to see a number of areas that are going to suddenly see this increase. So then I come back to saying, okay, we've all proposed how to basically move us out of a lockdown. But what turns us back in again? I haven't seen that discussed at all. And I would say that if we see a period of even seven days continued increase in the number of cases, if we see the percentage of infected going up or percentage of all those tested in within seven days, if we start seeing admissions to hospitals following emergency room visits, and remember the hospitalization is going to be later. That's not going to be nearly as sensitive because patients will often be infected get sick and not get to hospitalization for seven or 10 days after they're initially infected. So we'll be in a lag phase at that point. So we've got to have a system that can equally kick back in. And how's that going to happen? Everyone who has just struggled to get out of the shutdown are going to say, no, no, not now. No, I'm not going back. And we have got to have clear and compelling measures. So as I've said it time and time again, we've got to have off ramps, we've got to have on ramps. And everybody has to know what they are. They can't be seen as being discretionary. They can't see seen as somehow favoring or hurting others. Uh, we've got to do that. So I think that to answer your question, Chris, is yes, we do have to start phasing back in. But we also have to understand how we're going to drop back out and get basically uh, to a point of where we need to, to uh, hold this virus transmission down again. Let me also just add, add one other point about this, is that as we do this, we need to take measure of what this is doing to our communities economically. And we have to, at the same time, really, I think, emphasize 
the kind of mental health resources that I think right now uh, many people would benefit from immensely that are being challenged that way. And uh, I, I, I would argue that uh, if there's anything that should be part of this phase in and phase out is that we need to understand the needs of people like that who need uh, the kind of, of what I would call mental health support. Last in this whole discussion, I, I think it's critical that we also begin saying, wait a minute, whether cases are going up or down, we can release back into the public uh, in, a, in a way that's supportive, not uh, at all uh, uh, blaming or somehow uh, looking at as if this is wrong, is for our younger population to allow them, particularly young adults, they're not being guinea pigs, they have a choice, but to say, you know what? We need people back into the workforce. We need people to be able to maintain uh, a number of essential services and to get life somewhat back to a time when it is more functional. And if you decide that you want to do that, uh, as long as you're not posing a major risk to the rest of the community, meaning the chances of you becoming infected and becoming uh, so ill that you need health care uh, uh, and that you end up in a hospital, the chances of that are very, very rare. And so we want to have that discussion, and we haven't had that yet. How do we do this? I don't see us just going all on or all off. I think there's got to be a way we can look at that. The other part of that is, is how do we bubble those areas that need this? As part of our plan, we've been working with the Minnesota Department of Health and uh, the Minnesota uh, Human Services uh, in terms of looking at what we can do from a policy standpoint, from a worker support standpoint to bubble long-term care facilities. We're in our state now, we have over 100 of them that have uh, had infection uh, and, and the implications are huge and far reaching both for the residents as well as the workers. Nationwide, we've all seen the severe devastation that's happened uh, with uh, this infection in long-term care. And for that matter, I'd add conjugate care in general, people with uh, physical disabilities, uh, mental health facilities, even our prisons have had major challenges. So we have to also start having that discussion. How do we have people come back into society where even if we are going to turn on, turn off, they still may be ones out there that... Uh, uh, if they're infected and immune, even if they're back out there again, they're not a challenge for us, hopefully. And I say hopefully, we still have to prove that this is true, that um, uh, they, there's no benefit to society if they're not out there, if they're already immune. This is a big issue. I know this is not easy. It's controversial. But if we're going to go through months and months ahead, we have to start working on this issue right now. So uh, it's a, not a simple topic. Uh, but it's one that we must confront, and uh, I hope we can have a productive and thoughtful discussion ongoing about what to do to reopen. You mentioned uh, testing. Uh, a Harvard report came out this week that estimates the country will need to deliver 5 million tests a day by June for a safe social reopening, as they put it. Uh, do you agree with that estimate? And is that even possible given the, uh, the issues you've highlighted with testing, uh, the lack of reagents and other chemicals? First of all, I um, have to say that anyone who puts out a number on testing today, I applaud them for their willingness to uh, lay claim to we need to do something. But at the same time, I also challenge them to have a sense of reality. And uh, we have been talking about for the last month and a half the challenge with trying to test 
in a ever decreasing reagent world. Um, and, and so many of these recommendations are really not very helpful because so much is based on the ability to test and then carry on from there. And so if you can't get to first base, it's hard to get all the way around to the home plate. Um, and I think that that's been a, a, an issue. So the Harvard report, I think there were many interesting and in, 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 in supportive things in that report that uh, surely deserve further discussion. But I hope that those who are on the testing bandwagon, and I say that not meaning in a pejorative way, because I believe very much in testing. I, I, I want to know. I, I think it's very important. But let's be realistic. The world is on fire with COVID. Everyone in the world wants to use these reagents, and they want to test in a way that is severely challenged us to get enough reagents for the world to do these tests. And this, by the way, is going to be the same case with serology. Now that the antibody testing has become such a positive and, and almost hyped issue out there, in a few weeks, we're going to start seeing major challenges with, with the serology reagents that we're going to need too. So from a Harvard standpoint report, I don't think that testing is, uh, is a reality in the way we see it. Maybe uh, if we, in fact, have a blue ribbon panel type environment where the government together with the private sector works out a way to uh, really expedite the development, management, and procurement of these reagents, that would be a different thing. But right now, I haven't seen that coming, and it's going to continue to be a challenge. One other issue I would like to say about the Harvard report, which I think uh, did the best job of any that I've seen so far, is talking about contact tracing and more from the standpoint of the legal ethical issues. Um, I, uh, again, having spent my public health career in the trenches, uh, having set up the very first uh, program in the world for HIV contact tracing back in 1985 at the department, uh, I understand contact tracing all too well. And I look at it and I say to myself, um, you know, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Well, I know people want to slow down, if not stop transmission. Absolutely what we must do. Agree 100%. But the question is, does this really do that? Do we, in fact, have the ability to make a big difference? And we assume that based on what's been done in Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, Korea, and so forth, that that is uh, what will happen here, even China, of course. And uh, I think that we know right now that that is a challenge because of the fact that uh, uh, Singapore now is in a national state of emergency, Ranju, most of the cases are occurring to migrant workers in their camps there, but nonetheless, they're the highest numbers they've reported uh, by day since the beginning of the uh, pandemic in Singapore. We're seeing uh, similar problems in Japan, where now they're in a national state of emergency. And so it really is a uh, uh, an issue where we haven't figured out exactly yet what can we do with testing and contact tracing, how much does it really hold the virus down over time? We're seeing uh, renewed transmission in China where uh, they probably have without a question the most comprehensive program. So, Will, I'm, I'm willing to try this. I think it's uh, something we have to do, so I don't wanna appear to be a naysayer, but I also am understanding how the public will react and respond. In those countries we just talked about, uh, government has a, an unusual, if not uh, unparalleled opportunity to tell their residents they will go into incarceration, they will go into mandatory quarantine, uh, they will be removed from their homes, and it's just done. 
There is no debate. There is no discussion. And what we have now is a situation in this country where how are we going to set up contact tracing? How's it going to work? Are we just going to basically put forth this group of people who, uh, as at least in Massachusetts, not directly contacting the actual contacts in person, but by phone because of the risk of transmission? Well, I can tell you right now, and I'm not disclosing anything that will create a problem because I've heard it discussed by many, is that I have never known contact tracing to work when it's done by phone. And the reason for that is, is that who's going to believe who? That personal contact is really important. The ability to show identification is really important. And so the challenge we have here now is that how do we set up contact tracing where you can actually go and physically see someone, or maybe you I can do it over the internet. Uh, but the problem with that is, again, is going to be all the potential scams that will occur, et cetera, where somebody will call up and say, I'm from so-and-so health department. You've been exposed. You need to stay in your your home for 14 days, whatever. And again, I'm hearing a lot of that out there. So I know it's the conversations are taking place. So we have to work that out of terms of, of the issue of uh, contact tracing. Next, we have to think about what are we going to do from a mandatory standpoint? Um, are we going to, in fact, uh, require that people do this or they will, in fact, meet some kind of punishment or they will be removed and put in some kind of quarantine? And what's the percentage of people that will actually comply with that if we tell them they have to stay in sheltered place for 14 days? We just need to answer those questions by studying this and finding out what people's willingness and appetite is for this kind of thing. Uh, before we embark widely on this program. And uh, I think that we don't have a lot of time, so this isn't something we can study for six months. This is something we need to understand now. But I've seen almost no discussion about this uh, in any of our programs out there about how will we actually practically apply this. Uh, what will we do to actually identify contact? Um, we did a little bit of an informal survey and said, okay, with the new app that's out that's coming from Google and Apple, that will, based on Bluetooth, tell you who you may have been close contact with up to within 30 feet uh, over the time period that you may have been infectious. And that information would be shared anonymously with these people, again, urging them to basically self-quarantine for 14 days. And in asking uh, a number of public health professionals, would you do that if you got that information on your phone? And all but one said, no, they wouldn't. Now, that's public health people. Um, and so I think, again, we have to have a better understanding of this. So I don't want anyone to come off of this podcast saying I am against contact tracing, but I'm also against just throwing anything up against the wall that may actually end up hurting the wall as opposed to sticking, meaning that, in fact, will the public trust this? Or will the public uh, resist this? And how will we go about doing this? What are the financial issues? If I'm making you shelter in place for 14 days, will you lose your money that you were making working somewhere? Um, we, we just haven't thought through these issues. So to me, this is something we need to do immediately. There should be a federal national committee of some kind brought together of medical ethicists, of, of public health, of medicine, uh, of, of government, uh, to actually address these issues and say, okay, this is how we're going to set up. These are the standards. I, I don't want to see 50 different states all embarking on a different approach here because I'll guarantee you some of the states will get it wrong. And all it's going to take is a couple of bad Apple events to make it difficult for everyone. In the 1980s, when we first did HIV contact tracing, um, 
I can tell you that it was a challenge when we had one STD clinic in one city outside of Minnesota that the data was accidentally leaked out. It was not intentionally leaked. It was through a computer glitch, uh, uh, an early on thing. And it was a disaster because everyone for that day on kept saying, aha, see, my information is not secure. It's not secure. And so we have to make sure we do a contact tracing that it works out. So I, I would just say in terms of the study, Harvard study did say we had to look at this, uh, but now we have to do it. Uh, don't I, I don't want to see us really embark on this uh, without understanding that. And I see that happening right now. Every governor wants to get the economy back up. Every governor is is full bent ahead going on testing. And every governor is talking about contact tracing. And I believe absolutely, uh, as the old oil fram commercial was, was, you'll pay me now or you'll pay me later. I think if we don't really take the time right now and do it quickly, really try to come up with a consensus, how we're going to do this, what the standards will be, how it will be addressed, what the implications are for an individual who does or doesn't comply with the request, uh, how testing results will be shared across private sector. Uh, right now, we've got contact tracing being done by, in a sense, private citizens almost being brought in. Are they actually going to be covered under the laws of data privacy for each state? How is that going to be done? Um, these are the issues we need to work out. And then we can move forward, hopefully, with testing and given the timeline we have to move right now. So uh, I know this was a long explanation off the Harvard study, but I congratulate them for at least addressing, I think, that these issues have to be addressed. On the issue of uh, uh, contact tracing, uh, Mike, uh, what kind of training would people need to do that? And what kind of level of education would they need? Is this uh, is contact tracing an idea that sounds great in theory, but in practice is is pretty difficult? Actually, contact tracing is not easy. Um, and uh, those who do it in the sexually transmitted disease area um, often have a substantial period of time of training under the watchful and, and wise guidance of people who have done it for many years. Uh, some of the STI, sexually transmitted infection programs, are more than a year in training. Uh, there's many sensitivities uh, about this, uh, about uh, having been exposed to someone who they want to know who. Uh, they, in many cases, may need follow-up, may need testing. Uh, in this case, that could be the same, particularly if symptoms develop. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's a very fair question to say, what is enough adequate training in a time of crisis to make this work? Uh, one is we want to protect, obviously, the safety of the contact tracer. Two is we want to make sure that the person who's being contacted uh, is someone who uh, is in a position to hear the information that's being shared with them and make logical and hopefully uh, thoughtful choices about how they're going to proceed with their behavior. But I think today to tell someone to shelter in place or that they must potentially be uh, held in some kind of other facility beyond their home, uh, these are all really critical issues that you just don't put somebody on the street who spent their whole life doing some other career uh, with these kinds of issues. So, so I think training is going to be very important. I know that the Association of Sexually Transmitted Disease Investigators uh, here, the our public health organization, is helping with training modules, which I think is great. And these are the people that are really the experts in this area, and we need to bring them in. But this isn't just as simple as uh, washing windows, uh, which, by the way, is a real artful thing to have to do sometimes as somebody who's washed windows. Um, 
but I think it's one that I, I, I agree with you that we do need training for and we need to be able to deal with the eventualities. And we have to resolve some things. If we're not going to see people in person because of the risk of infection, which we've never had a problem with contact tracing before, even with TB, we still would trace people down and find them. Uh, with this one, this poses some really new challenges. And with the age of Internet and the age of scams on the Internet, this only makes the challenges more difficult. So the discussion about reopening the country uh, leads us to uh, a misconception that people may have about the coronavirus. Uh, and this is the idea that that once we flatten the curve, we'll go back to something like normal fairly quickly. Uh, does the situation in Singapore, w- which seemed to have the virus under control early, but in the past week has seen a doubling of, in cases, uh, suggest this idea is my- misguided? The uh, approach to controlling this virus is, number one, know that it's always here. Number two, it's always trying to transmit. And number three, it'll find any leak that you have in your wall of protection. And given that, then you can say, well, okay, so what a country that has a very rigorous, comprehensive testing and contact tracing program, um, should they not be successful or will they be? And I think, as you just asked in the question about Singapore, uh, and clearly Hong Kong, China, these are all ongoing challenges. And two things are happening now that really make for a what I would call a more complicated situation. One is the fact that um, if you look at travel, grant you it has been reduced substantially with lockdowns around the world. That is going to start back up again. And when travel starts back up again, um, we're going to start seeing cases come into your country or your state or your city that are coming from any one of 187 different countries or territories where the virus is at. This isn't as simple as just targeting Asia or China. And so we're going to move virus around, not only uh, between countries, but within countries. That's going to make it more difficult because then when transmission occurs that way, um, you'll have whole new chains that will constantly be started. That's number one. Number two is, is that as we reopen, we're just going to see the overall increase that's going to occur in the number of contacts and people who are going to transmit the virus. So while Singapore, I think, has been a, a model in the sense that they have remained largely open um, until very recently, uh, and so they are trying to portray, in a sense, a model where uh, you can have everyday life with some compromises uh, in terms of control measures, but that overall, you can still maintain it. But I think as you're seeing right now with the migrant workers in in Singapore and what that means for spillover into the regular population, uh, this is a really difficult thing to do. We just have to understand we're gonna be living with it. So anyone who thinks we're gonna flatten this curve, which I hope we have, I believe in places like Seattle and New York and other cities and in the country here in Minnesota, we have done some of that. But I also think we have to be humble enough to recognize in 1918, those early waves disappeared anyway, regardless of whether we did anything or not. Um, And so I I, I don't want to take any credit away from the hard work that's been done by society. But we also realize that, you know, again, when are we controlling what's going on with this virus and when we are just riding along with it? And now having said that, I, I do think absolutely that the ongoing case counts are going to, case numbers are going to keep going up and up and up with transmission. They just will. 
And so uh, we're not flattening the curve in a way that means it's done. It's, we're just flattening it in terms of for now. Uh, we're keeping the increasing number of patients out of the hospitals and ICUs. And that's going to be hard to get across to people. This is not going to be done for many more months to come. Any last thoughts, Mike? Yeah, I, you know, I think this past week has, um, to some degree, startled people. And what I mean by that is, is that um, this has been a fight about us as humans against this virus. And we surely have had the interjection of international affairs and countries to blame and, and who not to blame. We've seen issues in our own country about the uh, response and, and the challenges of that response and who's responsible for not adequately responding, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, I can tell by my own email and I know in talking to colleagues that what they're seeing happen in their work, as well as just the news, and the general public, uh, I worry that we're approaching a second epidemic, a one that's overlaid it upon uh, COVID. And that is this, this human versus human issue. This, this idea that there are those who believe that their rights have been taken away or that they believe somehow that what they're doing uh, to them is unfair and not justified based on the issues. They will often even blame it on the fact that you're either pro or anti the current president. And then I hear from public health people. I have to tell you, I, I, I've had some very interesting emails this week from colleagues I know who are irate that these people were in public settings protesting without respiratory protection, without any kind of distancing, and they brought kids with them included. And I had some of these professionals, these were medical doctors and nurses who said, you know what, these people should be made to sign a waiver that if they get infected as a result of this activity, they will not be cared for in a hospital by healthcare workers who are going to put their life in the line to try to take care of them. And I mean, it was really very straightforward and, um, and just this is, is hard. And I worry that we're dividing into two camps that are getting farther and farther apart that overlay this on top of what will be a horrible situation. And it's the worst of all ingredients. It's fire and gas together. And I wish I was a heck of a lot smarter to know how we should approach this to try to de-escalate this, to try to minimize it. And I know everyone will have their own ideas, and I surely have mine. But I, I just beg the world right now, you know, let's let's go back and do this kind of debating and disagreeing and angry exchange of words after this thing gets done with. In the meantime, let's just try our best to deal with this. This is going to get a lot worse. And uh, we need to hang together. Now, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm just an old man who, who doesn't get it. But I really do honestly believe that we've got to find a way to say, you know, this virus is going to make us all equal in the end. If you don't like what we're doing right now and you think the risk is not a big risk, trust me, you will not be a red state or a blue state. You will not be a red county or a blue county. You will not be a red town or a blue town. You will be a COVID-colored town one day. Um, and it's going to find us. And that's when we're going to realize we are all in this together. And so um, I think if I had to leave with any parting words, it's kind of how I started this whole entire issue. And I dedicated this to, to my dear, dear friend and, and missed colleague, Alan Kind, um, that, you know, we also take a moment to find the way to how can we deal with this that de-escalates it? 
and you know, I'm going to try my best. You know, I, I surely don't agree with some of the things I see happening right now, but I'm going to try to find the best in what I can do here. I will not stop saying what I think is right and true, even if it's not popular. But at the same time, I need to listen. And I hope all of us listen. And that means anybody on either side of the issue listens. And uh, we're all going to need each other in the end. I, people may not realize that right now, but there's going to be a lot of those people who are protesting right now what's going on who are hurting, but they're going to also need other people in the end before this is over with. And so I just leave it with a message of hope and say, you know, we're going to get through this. As I've said time and time again, how we get through it will be the measure of history that we'll all be uh, measured by. And when our great grandkids look back on that, remember that time in 2020 and 2021 when that virus went through the country, much like, you know, some of us did with 1918, I hope that we're able to answer the question of how we did by saying, you know, we came together, not apart. And um, um, that would be my final hope. And in the meantime, um, I just want to thank all of you for listening. I, again, please go do something kind for somebody every day. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm, and thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.